Hi, Raphael here. Welcome to Ask Me Anything for today, the 16th of October, 2020. I've got a couple of public service announcements to begin with. Um, first one is that uh, this uh, video, Ask Me Anything, is also available as a podcast, an audio-only podcast. So if you uh, head over to wherever your favourite place is to access podcasts, whether that be the iTunes Store or Spotify or Google Podcasts or wherever, uh, you will find us, find me under Ask Me Anything if you just type that into the search bar. Uh, and also that uh, with uh, my colleague and friend Chloe Bunter, I have a another podcast. Um, and uh, Chloe and my podcast is called Pilates Elephants. And in Pilates Elephants, uh, we talk about the elephants in the room in the Pilates industry, um, uh, basically examining the the myths and misconceptions um, that abound in Pilates and trying to think critically about them. And we swear a lot. Um, so that's Pilates Elephants. And that's also on Spotify, the Apple podcast app and every other major podcast platform. Uh, and uh, finally, that uh, if you're a Pilates instructor, if you have been graduated um, sort of two or more years from your Pilates course, whether you studied with us or whether you studied with uh, somebody else, um, if you are looking around and starting to think about what might be the next level of uh, study and skill and depth of knowledge and expertise for you, and if you're interested in uh, particularly in working with clinical clients, so people who have pain, injuries, or med uh, medical conditions, uh, pop over to our website and check out the our new Diploma of Clinical Pilates, which is being relaunched uh, for January 2021. And uh, the webpage is now up and uh, we're not quite ready to take your enrolment, but we will be ready to take your enrolment within the next uh, seven days, I would say. So uh, you can go about and read all, all about that course at breathe, B-R-E-A-T-H-E, breathe.edu.au, and then just look under... Um, courses and programs, and then uh, programs for instructors. And there is the Diploma of Clinical Pilates. All right. So first up, uh, I have a question from a, uh, from a, don't know if that's a student or not, but someone who wishes to remain anonymous. Uh, and she says, hi, Raf. I had a PRP injection yesterday um, in my elbow for uh, tennis elbow. Um, and so far, so good. Way less painful than the cortisone injection. I'd asked my surgeon and the doctor who did the procedure what my rehab procedure should be and when I can start loading or exercising again. And both avoided answering the question and said to do nothing and rest it with no end date. I'm guessing this is because it's a new procedure and this will drive me crazy. Uh, I've done some research and found some rehab suggestions. If this was if this was you, what would you do? Do you have any suggestions? Um, all right, so firstly, just a quick uh, synopsis of uh, tennis elbow and PRP injections. So tennis elbow uh, is not something that is specific to tennis, but um, it's just that's the name that people call it. Its proper name is lateral epicondylalgia. And 
whoops, the lateral epicondyle of the humerus, the outside kind of semi-spherical bulge of the humerus. So basically your, the outside of your elbow um, is the lateral epicondyle and on it is the, what's something called the common extensor tendon. And so all of the uh, muscles in your fore, in your, on the back of your forearm are the muscles that extend both your wrist and also your fingers. So uh, anytime you do a move that extends, you know, some combination of your wrist and or your fingers, you activate those muscles on the back of your forearm. And all of those muscles share a common tendon, which inserts into the lateral epicondyle of the humerus. So uh, the lateral epicondyle algia, um, algia just means like pain, um, so lateral epicondylalgia just means you've got a pain on the outside of the elbow in the region of that tendon. Um, and uh, the pain is sometimes thought to be associated with a tendinitis or tendinosis or tendinopathy of that uh, common extensor tendon. Um, and so one of uh, the treatments actually that's quite recent and is showing some promise in the research is platelet-rich plasma injections in which they basically uh, draw some of your own blood and then they separate out the blood and uh, they, they take actually the red blood cells out of the blood and they leave in the platelets uh, which are basically the clotting factor in your blood that, that causes it to clot uh, and, and uh, triggers a whole bunch of other sort of healing responses um, you know, um, in a cascade within uh, within the blood system. Uh, so, and they and the plasma is just basically the f the the water that makes up most of your blood volume, with a bunch of mostly proteins, you know, molecules floating in it. The mostly proteins, and a lot of those have to do with immunity and healing and stuff. So basically, they they inject some of your own blood minus the blood cells um, back into the the tendon uh, and that is a PRP injection and there's some quite promising research that shows that that can be effective uh, in this condition. So, uh, well, this person has pulled up a couple of uh, studies and uh, one of them was a systematic review uh, called Post-Procedure Protocols Following Platelet-Rich Plasma Injections for Tendinopathy, a systematic review from 2020. Um, and the synthesis says, uh, although the clinical effectiveness of PRP remains controversial, even less is known about the effect of post-PRP protocols, which may affect the outcomes attributed to PRP itself. No studies directly compare post-PRP protocols, and the protocol studied demonstrates substantial heterogeneity. Some consensus writing regarding post-PRP protocols exists, although the rationale for these recommendations is limited. Um, so uh, basically what that says is uh, they don't really know. Um, but if we read a little bit deeper, that it says the majority of protocols instituted a period of stretching and strengthening. Stretching programs generally began two to seven days following injection and strengthening programs began within two to three weeks. Uh, return to play or full activity was reported uh, most commonly in four to six weeks following injection. So that kind of gives us some rough timelines. And then uh, there was a second uh, document that this uh, person has provided, which is awesome. Um, and I didn't really have to do any research on this one because 
that have been done for me. And this was a uh, UW, I'm not sure what UW is, um, uh, University of Wisconsin Sports Medicine, their platelet-rich plasma rehabilitation guidelines. And this basically has uh, guidelines that uh, – suggests uh, that there are th- uh, three phases and the first phase is uh, the first few days after the injection where you basically rest it um, and do gentle active range of motion uh, pain-free um, you know so within pain-free range uh, then uh, the next uh, phase two is like three days to two weeks um, uh, post-injection and that is uh, working you know continue to work active range of motion so basically just you know moving the joint um, and uh, then adding uh, you know gentle weight bearing as tolerated so you know maybe a one kilo dumbbell or a little light flex band or something like that to load those muscles and then after two weeks basically uh, stretching exercises, joint mobilizations as needed, strengthening with emphasis on isometric and concentric activities and then eccentric progression as symptoms allow, TheraBand drills, dumbbell exercises, um, balance and proprioception activities, um, so full range of motion. And then uh, the final phase, sorry, it's a four-phase uh, scenario, four-phase pro program um which is basically back you know normal strengthening stretching etc increase load decrease reps um increase um speed um so and that is um six to eight weeks um after the procedure so you know i mean both of these uh things are basically based on uh, expert opinion, which is not terribly reliable, uh, but in the absence of any other evidence, uh, as that 2020 systematic review says, there is none, um, I would go with that because they're basically in line with uh, other protocols that I've seen for uh, tendinopathy. Um, and so, yeah, I would, I think... Uh, you know, to the nameless person who submitted this question, I think you've already answered your own question, um, and it looks like you've uh, done done your homework really well. So I would just follow those protocols. Hope that helps or gives you some uh, confidence in what you found. Uh, Jane Kingsford um, says, Hi Raf, I've been doing a bit of deep dive in the previous blogs or a lot of Googling, and would love to hear your opinion on a couple of questions I have, if you have time. Firstly, mind-muscle connection. For example, I understand that me lifting the milk out of the fridge is a biceps contraction unconsciously. They're working perfectly without me putting in any mental effort. The few articles I've read about mind-muscle connection increasing the quality of the contraction also makes sense to me. And it's something that I've found has made a difference in my movement or gains, more so from lifting heavy at the gym. Something that I know can really affect my Pilates practice is how much hard work I quote, make, end quote, the exercises for myself. I come from a very technical dance background growing up, but I also very much believe that there's no such thing as a wrong movement, and I'd like to think my teaching reflects that. I guess I'd just like to hear your opinion on it, and if and when bringing more awareness to particular muscles or movement qualities is beneficial for Pilates or lifting heavy things. Um, Great question, Jane. So basically... The question, as I understand it, is 
is it better or, you know, are there, under what circumstances might it be better to really f- focus your thought and your attention on the muscle that you're working or contracting in order to get a better result, depending on what you're trying to achieve. Um, and so the the research literature is pretty clear on this. And there, so there are two sort of uh, different scenarios, one where you would want to not focus your attention on the muscle and the other one where you probably would want to focus your attention on the muscle. So the first one is uh, if you are trying to increase your strength if you're trying to, or if you're trying to increase your skill in movement. So if you're trying to increase strength and strength is uh, by strength, I mean your ability to express strength. So your ability to uh, exert force against the outside world, whether that's on a weight against a weight or a spring or some other object um, in the world. Um, you know, if you're doing a biceps curl with a dumbbell, it would be moving the dumbbell. Would you know the biggest dumbbell you could move would you know define the limits of your strength. So uh, it's very clear from uh, you know a widely replicated literature that an external focus of attention enhances strength development and strength expression. So if you focus your attention on the dumbbell and on moving the dumbbell, you will actually be able to move a bigger dumbbell than if you focus your attention on your biceps. Uh, And whether it's a dumbbell or a barbell in weightlifting or a flex band or a spring on a reformer or your own body weight in a jump or, you know, doesn't matter. It's been you know, shown multiple times uh, in different contexts that focusing on the result of the movement and focusing your attention on a point outside your body that is related to the result of the movement is going to enhance your strength. Uh, the second component, uh, and and the second component is the uh, movement skill. So if you're trying to you know perfect a dance move or even perfect a Pilates move, like trying to you know achieve the perfect roll up or the perfect teaser, or you know you're trying to learn a martial arts move or how to serve in tennis or how to improve your golf swing. So if you're trying to improve your movement skill, uh, an external focus of attention related to the outcome of the movement, so the result of the movement, is going to enhance your movement your movement skill development. So if you were focusing on a dance move, uh, if you're trying to learn a dance move, you know, thinking about the... Uh, you know, the movement of uh, your dance shoes or, you know, moving and then watching yourself, you know, videoing yourself, watching the video. And then as you're moving, you know, moving and and thinking about the video uh, and trying to replicate that um, or making, you know, trying to land very quietly so that there's no sound, you know, there's a particular sound or a very soft sound. All of these things are external. All of these things are related to the outcome of the movement. If you're in a sports situation, it's very, very easy. You focus on the movement of the club in golf <laughs> or the, the racket in tennis, or you might focus on the movement of the ball, um, depending on your level of skill, because more skillful people will benefit from a 
more distant focus of attention, whereas more uh, intermediate and beginner learners will benefit more from a more proximal or proximate uh, focus of attention. So if you're you know, a relative beginner, you should focus on the club, whereas if you're a more you know, very highly skilled person, focus on the ball. Um, so this is the case across a broad range of activities, ages, you know, levels of skill, etc. So it's it's very well replicated and uncontroversial that when you focus your attention out on a point outside your body that re- relates to the outcome of the movement, you will enhance skill development. Um, you also enhance strength and you also enhance endurance. So when might it be a good time to uh, focus your attention inside the body and focus on the muscle that you are contracting? Uh, well, when you uh, the reason that when you focus the reason that when you focus outside your body you are stronger is because when you focus on you know if you're getting a jar if you're lifting a, bar, a, a dumbbell doing a biceps curl well we think of that as a biceps exercise but there's so much more going on than just the biceps contracting well number one it's not just the biceps that flexes the elbow there's the brachialis there's the brachioradialis. Um, then you have, those are the muscles that directly flex the elbow. Then you have a whole bunch of muscles that control pronation, supination in the forearm because as you flex, you don't want the dumbbell to go sideways. So you have to, you know, use your pronator teres and a whole bunch of other little muscles in the forearm to precisely guide the 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 movement of that dumbbell. Then, of course, you have to use your wrist and finger flexors, which are on the medial uh, side of your forearm, um, to control your wrist. And, of course, then you have to control the rotation of your shoulder so that the dumbbell doesn't fall inwards or outwards. And you have to maintain your shoulder girdle in a like a still position so that you, the dumbbell comes up rather than you coming down. You have to con, uh, contract your back muscles, your glutes, your hamstrings, your calves to prevent yourself bending forwards. So there's a whole host of muscle contractions. And then you also have to contra- contract the opposing muscles on the arm, the triceps, and of course, that's not just the triceps, just like on the front, it's not just the biceps. You have on the back of the triceps, you have the anconius also, which is like a little uh, single joint elbow extensor. Okay, so basically the elbow extensors are the brakes. And so just like if you drive a car forward and want to stop at the end of your driveway before you, you know, drive through the garage uh, wall, um, well, you have to hit the brakes. And the same, when you do a bicep curl, well, you don't want to smash your face with the dumbbell, so you have to hit the brakes so that the dumbbell decelerates at the end of the movement. Um, and so in order to do that, you have to contract your triceps, which of course oppose the biceps. So there, so the more you contract your triceps, the harder it is for you to lift the dumbbell because it's like trying to drive with the brakes on. So there's this incredibly rich, complex, textured symphony of muscle contraction that goes on um, in this supposedly simple movement of a biceps curl. Um, and when you focus your attention on the result of the movement, you know, bring the dumbbell from waist height to shoulder height. You know, you focus on the trajectory and smooth trajectory of the dumbbell. Um, what you're doing is essentially you're giving the non-conscious parts of your brain that organize movement, you know, the, the premotor cortex, essentially, um, an instruction that says, 
you know, move the dumbbell from here to here and move it smoothly. And then the premotor cortex will, or, or like a good lieutenant, will arrange that for you. You know, they, the premotor cortex will figure out which muscles need to be contracted in what sequence at what level of activation and will orchestrate all of that for you and spit it out as a, as a bunch of motor commands to the muscles that will achieve your desired result. And the, the premotor cortex is much better at doing that than your prefrontal cortex, which is where you consciously think. And so if you think about, you know, contracting this muscle and this muscle and this muscle and this muscle, well, you end up contracting the muscles uh, harder. Um, so when you when you use your pre, your your when you use an external focus of attention and your your premotor cortex gets to do the planning, um, you basically get to use less synergistic muscle. So you use less of those guiding muscles, less antagonist muscle, less of the the uh, triceps and anconius on the back of the arm. So you 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 glide more efficiently up the driveway and glide to it a halt, you know, centimetres from the garage wall um, rather than kind of revving the engine whilst having the brakes on and jerking forwards like you do when you're a beginner learning to drive and the same when you're a beginner learning to move a weight. Uh, And the reason beginners are more clunky like that is because they use conscious motor planning. In other words, they consciously tell their muscles what to do. Uh, And when we do that, we tend to weigh over activate muscles so we end up you know using too much triceps and too much rotator cuff and too much trapezius and too much pectoralis major and minor and latissimus dorsi and all of the other muscles um, and those muscles are co-contracting you know so you've got all of the muscles contracting all at once and that makes things rigid and jerky and also opposes the movement of the bicep the contraction of the biceps so you end up using more effort to do the same movement. Um, So that's why you get to express more strength when you focus externally, because your premotor cortex can plan it and is much more efficient at doing it than your conscious brain. Conversely, though, when you use your conscious brain to plan it, you use more effort to do the same movement. So you actually get a higher level of muscle activation when you focus on that, and it is in fact harder. So when you think about this idea that, you know, as you get better at Pilates, it gets harder. Well, that applies in the case where you're focusing internally and you're focusing on activating a muscle. Well, when you do that, you increase muscle activation everywhere, okay? More co-contraction, so you're opposing that muscle more. So the muscle, in fact, has to work harder. So you actually make it harder for yourself. So that would probably increase, uh, it increases the work and thus probably increases the fatigue that you are going to achieve in that muscle, which may enhance uh, muscle hypertrophy, muscle growth, Um, because there is is some uh, benefit to fatigue on muscle hypertrophy, although it's fairly relatively minor. And the main thing that contributes to muscle hypertrophy is the level of mechanical tension on the muscle fibers. Uh, And the way to get more mechanical tension on the muscle fibers is to lift a bigger dumbbell. And the way you lift a bigger dumbbell is use an external focus of attention. So we're back to um, external focus of attention. So I would say 99 times out of 100, (laughs) go with an external focus of attention. When would I use an internal focus of attention? Uh, Probably like 
when meditating, um, when focusing on my breath, uh, when trying to kind of get out of my head. Um, yeah, that's those are the times I would I would use it. But um, you know, having said that, I think getting out of your head. Well, if you're focusing on out point outside, that's a good way of getting out of your head as well. So I guess I'm I'm a big fan of uh, external focus of attention, and there are my reasons. I hope that makes sense. Uh, Jane has a second question. She says, breathing. I've been brought up with a real focus on breath in movement from dancing, and my Pilates practice has always felt better for me when there is a breath pattern tied in with the movement. Why do we teach breath? Why do we not teach breath? Does it have benefits from a movement or contraction point of view or more of a mindfulness slash decreasing anxiety side of things, which may be why it's always been useful for me? Is intra-abdominal pressure something we should be mindful of when teaching clients? Well, there's a lot of questions there. Um, thanks so much and hope you're doing well with this crazy, exhausting time we're having. Thanks, Jane. Um, so uh, breathing is a uh, mechanical process uh, in that, uh, you know, to inhale, you contract your diaphragm, which contracts downwards and flattens, uh, expand, you know, pulling your lungs down um, and thus expanding the area inside your lungs. So now there's a bigger area inside your lungs and the air inside your lungs is you know, spaced out over a bigger area. So there's less pressure inside your lungs. So now there's less pressure inside your lungs than there is in the atmosphere. So then the air from the atmosphere goes from the high pressure to low pressure and pushes into your lungs. So basically when you contract your diaphragm, your lungs expand. Um, and when you uh, contract your diaphragm, uh, partly because of the action of the diaphragm um, and also partly just because of uh, synergistic muscles that work with the diaphragm, um, as you inhale, there's a very slight spinal extension. So if you know, if you just sit quietly now and breathe and just take a, a, an inhale and exhale, what you'll feel is that on the inhale, there's a very slight back bend that happens. And as the exhale, there's a very slight forward bend or flexion. Uh, and that's just a completely normal part of the mechanics of breathing. You know, the muscles you use to inhale are the same muscles that you use to extend your spine and vice versa with flexion. So uh, if you were going to coincide your breath with movement, it would be probably a good plan to coincide inhaling with backbending and exhaling with forward bending because those are kind of the natural movements that go with those uh, breath patterns. Uh, and what you'll find is, even if you don't think about breath particularly, generally, those are the breath, that's the breath you'll do as you bend forward, you'll exhale, and you bend backward, you'll tend to inhale. Although people can sometimes, you know, tend to breath hold on, on extension as well. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of the natural movement. When would you cue breath? Uh, I would cue breath uh, for someone who was pregnant or uh, had high blood pressure, who I didn't want to breath hold because breath holding increases blood pressure. Um, and so I would cue them to breathe through movement. Uh, I would cue someone if they were uh, sort of anxious and hypersensitized in terms of their pain um, sensitization. Um, I, you know, cueing belly breathing can be a really nice way to uh, down-regulate the um, sort of fight-or-flight response. Uh, so, you know, those are some situations where I would cue breath. Um, sometimes if you're doing a 
a move that involves like a lot of spinal flexion. Cueing to squeeze the air out of your lungs or breathe out firmly can help to get more spinal flexion. Um, yeah, so that, that's probably when I would cue breath. Um, uh, when would you not cue breath? I would not cue breath for a beginner who already has enough to think about in terms of just putting their arms and the legs and their legs in vaguely the right place and moving the reformer carriage in and out or standing up and sitting down or whatever. Um, yeah, so that's when I would cue breath. Um, and is intra-abdominal pressure something we should be mindful of when teaching clients? So basically intra-abdominal pressure is the pressure inside your uh, abdominal cavity. And when you when you inhale and then exhale against a closed glottis like this, <sighs> um, which we all do kind of naturally when we go to lift up something heavy. It's also what you do when you strain to go to the toilet. Um, and what that does is pressurizes your abdominal cavity and that makes your spine stiffer. So that's why we all do it when we go to lift up something heavily or heavy or, you know, do a big exertion. It's kind of instinctive and that's normal and you don't need to cue people to do that. They should, they just automatically do it. Uh, is intra-abdominal pressure we should be mindful of? No, not really. Again, unless they have hypertension, high blood pressure or are pregnant, in which case they shouldn't breath hold. Um and uh, yeah, so that, those would be the times when I would uh, cue not to not to hold breath. Hope that helps. All right, uh, Terry says, do Pilates studios charge GST? Now, Terry, that is a really good question, and my top of mind answer is I think yes is the answer to that. But I did send an email to my accountant and ask him just to confirm that, and I'm not sure if he's replied to me yet, but I will be able to tell you that in a minute. And he has, and he says, hi Raf, assuming the business turns over more than $75,000 per annum and is required to register for GST. So if you're teaching uh, and you are just a solopreneur, you know, teaching on the side, uh, you don't need to register for GST unless you're earning $75,000 a year or more. Uh, so Terry says, um, I hope you're having a great week. I have a quick question regarding GST as I'm changing my business structure slightly. Are Pilates studios meant to include GST in their fees? I've always been under the impression that we do not charge GST because of the type of exercise we provide, but I just wanted to check if I was wrong in this matter. Thanks in advance, Terry. Well, here's what uh, my accountant, uh, Josh from Growth IQ in Adelaide has to say. Hi, Raf. Assuming the business turns over more than $75,000 a year and is required to register for GST... Um, GST is charged on Pilates in a group fitting fitness setting as it is not defined as a medical service or a listed health services. Um, the exception is if the actual group session is provided by a medical practitioner or a recognised professional for appropriate treatment, um, in other words, rehabilitation, by a referring or providing practitioner for that person. In this instance, the fees are GST free. Um, of course, if the business is not required to register for GST, um, in other words, if they have an annual turnover of less than $75,000 Australian, um, no GST is charged. Um, so there you go. That is a very clear answer to your question, Terry, and uh, I hope that helps. 
Irene says, hi, any chance you can recommend Pilates moves to strengthen the knee gently after an injury from gardening? Where I bruised the knee bone, please. Regards, Irene. Uh, great question, Irene. So I would say a uh, uh, couple of first, you know, two, three days, probably just rest it um, and, uh, you know, move it gently. As you know, when I say rest it, I don't mean, I don't mean completely immobilize it. I mean, like, you know, just move it gently. Don't go jogging. Don't uh, do any strengthening work. Um, and then probably starting, you know, kind of two or three days after um, the injury, I would uh, recommend um, getting back to, you know, gingerly walking on it and weight bearing on it um, and trying to walk as normally as possible. Uh, and then probably after about a week, um, when I would assume that most of the swelling would have gone down, that would be when I would start strengthening. Uh, and I would suggest uh, starting with, uh, again, depending on your symptoms, but starting with um, basically whatever you can tolerate within your pain tolerance. And so um, something that basically, if it feels a bit uncomfortable during is fine, but if it's, uh, if the discomfort lasts, you know, for more than a few hours after the the recession, then you you know that's that indicates that you just went a bit too hard. So you could start um, at the gentle end with you know squats like holding onto a doorway or a cupboard door or you know, kitchen bench or something, so that you're doing two legged squats with assistance from your hands. And even better if you can do it somewhere looking into a mirror, so that you you can see that you keep relatively symmetrical because it's uh, common when you have a sore knee as you squat to kind of lean away from that side to take the weight off it. Um, and what we want to do is actually load it um, within your pain tolerance. And so keeping straight in the mirror is a really good way to uh, make sure that you, you know, are working that leg the same as you work in the other leg. Uh, from there, you could go to a body weight squat, you know, no hands. Um, and from there, you could do uh, lunges. Um, or split squat. So a lunge is where you step forwards and then step back. You know, you step forwards and down and then back. Uh, and a split squat is where you, you start in a lunge position, then you just go down and up, down and up, down and up on the spot without actually stepping forwards or back. And you could do it with that, with your bruised leg as the front leg and then again with it as the back leg. Um, so, and I would recommend doing, uh, you know, finding an exercise that is like the, the strongest one you can tolerate um, and then do uh, as many reps as you can tolerate minus three or four. So don't go all the way to hitting failure, but get start to get to the point where you're like, oh, this is really getting hard. Um, and I would do, you know, uh, do one set, wait five minutes, do another set, wait five minutes, do another set. So do three sets with five minute rest in between and do that twice a week um, on non-consecutive days. So do it on Monday and Thursday or Tuesday and Friday or Wednesday and Saturday. Uh, and uh, that's my recommendation. Um, lunges uh, or squats are going to work all of the muscles you need to work. They're going to particularly target the quadriceps, the, the main knee extensors, but you'll also work your calves and your hamstrings and your glutes and your adductors. They're going to work all of the muscles around the joint. So I hope that helps. Uh, Nikki says, in fact, I've got the next two questions are both uh, kind of related. Nikki says, uh, hi, Raphael, is it safe to practice full range of motion of the neck to extension and flexion if you have cerebellum tonsil ectopia. 
Do you have any experience of clients who've been able to exercise normally despite the condition? Many thanks, Nikki. Um, so Nikki, the answer is I have not had any clients with that condition and I had to look up what the heck it was. Um, and now I have learned something. Um, it's also called Chiari 1 malformation, um, as described more than 100 years ago by Dr. Hans Chiari. Um, a Chiari 1 malformation consists of a herniation of the cerebellar tonsils. So basically, the base of your brain, at the very base of your brain, the brain stem, it's called, um, you've got this kind of little mini brain that sits under there and that's um, called the cerebellum and that uh, is basically where your spinal cord exits your you know the your skull through a big hole in the skull called the foramen magnum and then goes into your spinal cord spinal column um, and so uh, uh, cerebellar ect- um, ectopia um, also called, Chiari 1 malformation, is where basically the bottom of the cerebellum kind of bulges out down through the foramen magnum, you know, or in other words, herniates, because to herniate simply means where a body part bulges out of or into another body part. Uh, and so in this case, it's the cere- the bottom of the cerebellum, the bottom of the base of the brain, bulging out of the skull and down into the spinal column, you know, so what sits directly beneath the foramen magnum is your C1, your top vertebra in your neck, your top cervical vertebra. Um, and so your your then the cerebellum is protruding down from the skull into the C1. And so the, the articulation, you know, the joint between the C1 and the skull is where you get a lot of your flexion and extension from in your, uh, in your neck uh, and also the C1, C2 joint. Uh, and so the question is a really good one. Um, you know, does this uh, influence, you know, whether this person should be doing flexion and extension with their neck if part of their brainstem is kind of herniated down into uh, the C1? Um, so here's what I found. Um, that basically uh, a large por- portion of people who have this, excuse me, this condition are asymptomatic. And the general consensus amongst uh, the literature seems to be that uh, for asymptomatic people, um, uh, physical restrictions are not necessary. So basically, if there are no symptoms associated with the condition, you should probably just continue a, a about your business as usual. Um, and the physical restrictions that they do advocate are basically contact sports. <laughs> so um, for people who have symptoms, they advocate physical restrictions, no contact sports. And you can probably imagine why that wouldn't be a good plan. So I didn't find any mention of flexion or extension in terms of physical restrictions. Um, now, the symptoms that can happen uh, can be, uh, you know, fairly um, uh, diverse um, and it can restrict the flow of cerebrospinal fluid from the, the brain case down into the spine. 
um, and can also compress the cerebellum and and the spinal cord. So you can have kind of muscle wastage. You can have you know diverse central nervous system symptoms as a result of the lack of flow of cerebrospinal fluid. Um, so if you're getting any of those symptoms, I would uh, yeah, just basically pay attention to whether the flexion and extension seems to aggravate them or not. And you could do things like uh, recording, you know, symptom levels, you know, before a workout, then after a workout and doing that over a period of, you know, days or weeks and seeing if there was any pattern there. Um, but basically I think, you know, as long as you're not playing rugby league, you're probably, you know, probably fine. Um, and, uh, I'm, would hope and assume that you're in touch with a medical professional and a, uh, potentially a surgeon because surgery does seem to be uh, a, a, an indicated for a lot of these situations. So I hope that helps. Uh, now, Jan uh, Janet Lasek says, um, hi, Raf, how are you? I have a question for you. Um, what specific exercises can you recommend for a client with spinocerebellar ataxia? She is the mid-stage, but she has noticed a progression in severity of symptoms, including dysphasia, dysarthria, gradual vision loss, gradual loss of proprioception, and getting much worse, peripheral neuropathy. Pez Cavus, when lying on her right side, her left foot overarches and wraps around the right foot. She describes it as my left foot has a mind of its own, wanting to wrap around my right foot and break my right foot. Any advice, greatly appreciated. Um, so there's a lot of medical terminology there. So congratulations, uh, Janet. Um, so basically spinocerebellar ataxia. Um, so, uh, this is a, a genetic degenerative condition. Um, and, uh, you're probably out there thinking, gee, this guy knows a lot. No, I just had to look it up. I just looked it up. So I didn't know, I'd never heard of it until this morning when I started doing some research on this. So, uh, it's a progressive genetic condition um, where the upper spinal cord or the lower brain, the brain stem, the cerebellum, um, basically degenerates. Um, and uh, you get lots of, you know, again, diverse symptoms, um, including um, problems with speech, problems with movement, um, problems with vision, um, problems with proprioception, problems with muscle wastage uh, and sensation in the arms and legs. Um, so, you know, because the nervous system is involved and the nervous system controls all of those body parts, if there's a problem with the nervous system, well, you can have symptoms in any or all of those body parts. So I did find a, a systematic review on exercise for spinocerebellar ataxia. And what it basically said is um, very similar to what you find in almost every other literature for every other um, chronic medical condition is that uh, exercise is not a silver bullet. It's not going to cure the condition, but what it will do is it will probably improve uh, many of the symptoms and will um, uh, increase quality of life um, because it improves mental health. Um, it improves you know, functional capacity, it'll probably improve strength, it'll probably improve, you know, many of the symptoms, if not, you know, probably not all of them. Um, and what exercise is best? Um, it would just 
this systematic review didn't mention specifics. Um, and so I would just go back to the recommendations uh, from the ACSM for health, healthy adults, which apply to basically everybody, which are a moderate intensity cardio exercise, so walk, brisk walking or equivalent, um, 30 minutes a day, five days a week um, or more, um, and strength training two to three days a week. So working all major muscle groups, you know, to a point of near fatigue two to three times a week and stretching two to three times a week for each major muscle group. Um, and you can absolutely split any of that up over the week. So if you, you know, if 30 minutes walking is too much, well, three lots of 10 minutes or six lots of five minutes over the course of the day is just as good. And anything is better than nothing. So even if you just do five minutes a day, that is going to give you some degree of benefit compared to doing nothing. So I would say, you know, aim for 30 minutes or more, five days a week of brisk walking or equivalent you know, intensity um, of any other activity, and then two to three resistance training sessions and two to three flexibility sessions. But don't let perfect be the enemy of done, right? Just do something, right? So anything you do is going to have some benefit. Um, I don't think there is anything that I would avoid except for um, things that compromise balance. So, you know, sounds like this person already has potentially compromised balance because of some of these symptoms. So, you know, don't do crazy things like standing on BOSUs or things like that, or doing, you know, uh, side splits on a reformer on a light spring sort of thing. Um, but basically any form of stretching, strengthening and cardio that doesn't involve risk of them falling and breaking their neck um, is going to be great. So whatever they enjoy, whatever's easy for them to access um, and is fun um, and, you know, if they can do it in lots of small bouts per day and that makes it easy for them, well, that's just great too. And, you know, even a little bit is going to be good and start out small and just build it up. Hope that helps. I have one final question from James. Um, and James says, how long do you raise your heart rate each day? I hope you're keeping well in Melbourne. Do you have any research on hand which discusses how long people should elevate their heart rate for per day? Seeing a lot of people really interested in calorie burn, but that is clearly not the be all and end all of a great workout. Yeah. Um, so great question, James. And so I'm going to go back to uh, the ACSM guidelines here. This is the American College of Sports Medicine uh, Guidelines for Exercise Testing and Prescription, 10th edition, which is uh, published in 2018. It's the current version. Uh, and so there are there is an absolutely massive mountain of research showing that people who do regular cardiovascular exercise have a myriad of health benefits, um, the foremost amongst which is probably living longer. Um, but then basically any aspect of human functioning from mental health to mental function to uh, obesity to metabolic disease to heart disease to cancer to chronic obstructive pulmonary disease to you know, think of a thing, you know, functional capacity, um, all are improved by exercise. And basically for most of these things, there's a dose response relationship where if you do more exercise, you get more benefit. Um, now, there are many ways when we say do more exercise, there are many ways that we can measure how much exercise you did. So we could say, oh, you did 30 minutes a day or you did 60 minutes a day, or we could say you burned X number of calories, or we could say you did X number of met minutes with a metabolic equivalent being uh, the amount of energy you burn when you're at rest, just lying down, digesting your food. 
So all of these are kind of just different ways of describing how much um, exercise you've done. Um, and so if you, you know, the, the current guidelines say if you do 30 minutes a day of brisk walking or equivalent, you know, moderate intensity cardio exercise, you basically reduce your chance of dying of any cause in the next 10 years by 50%, which is pretty dramatic. Now that 30 minutes a day, if you're a average 70 kilo adult male, um, will equate to burning roughly 1,000 calories. You know, So in your 150 minutes a week of brisk walking, you will burn about 1,000 calories. So if you aim to you know, exert 1,000 calories a week, that's the equivalent, right? Because if you run twice as fast, you get the same benefit in half the time. So it really comes down to basically how much energy you've expended. And there are many different ways of measuring that. Calories is a good one. Um, but you know, time and speed are also you know, pretty good measures. So uh, something where you're slightly out of breath for 150 minutes a week or very out of breath for 75 minutes a week or a thousand calories a week of cardio. Um, all of those are basically equivalent um, or uh, 500 met minutes a week, I think is the, the other equivalent. So I hope that helps. I hope you uh, found this interesting and useful. And if you have questions, I would love to hear from you, even if you're a student, even if you're not a student, even if you're never going to be a student, um, I would love to hear from you. You can email your questions to ama at breathe, B-R-E-A-T-H-E dot E-D-U dot A-U. Hope you're awesome. I hope your loved ones are well too. And I'll see you next week. 